Last week, uh, being you, since you're the first service, <laughs> duh, wow, it's already starting out wildly profound. Um, Pastor Brent, I, <laughs> nobody can appreciate the kind of glitches and things that take place mentally when another preacher is uh, speaking and you're a preacher and you're listening to him. Uh, because believe me, you know, it, we all go the same path many, many times over the course of our preaching. And, and I was rolling, figuratively seek, uh, speaking, because, and I sit right here, which intimidates the heck out of anybody who speaks up here. And I don't do that to, to do that. I do it because if there's anybody in front of me, you know, I'm that, that kid, right? It's like, ooh, what? Hey, ooh, they moved. Hey, they, their tag is outside their, you know. So I got to sit up here, man, so I can just concentrate. So if you remember last week, <laughs> Pastor Brent was speaking, and he got that look, and I went, oh, no, I know the look. The look where everything's just kind of gone out of your mind, and you have no idea where you are, where you were going, what you were doing, and you just get that. And you look down, and it, and it ah. Anyway, it reminded me of a crazy situation that happened many, many years ago, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. This unknown visitor preacher guy, well, he wasn't a preacher, he was a scholar, came in and he was doing our chapel service um, for, the, uh, for a three-day period that week. His name was Ravi Zacharias. You've probably heard of him now. But then, seriously, he was a nobody. And he was still in his own educational processes and everything, and yet he was just as phenomenal then as he is today. And he's up there, and he's, he's of course, talking to future preachers. And, uh, and he's telling us a story about a young man that, uh, in his, his earlier days of education for Ravi, they were in homiletics class, and, which is preaching, learning how to preach and all that. And so uh, that, that is a horrid situation because you have to get up in front of all your peers and the professor who's grading you and picking you apart and all that stuff. And you're supposed to be calm and collected and dynamic and all that, and it's supposed to help you somewhere along the line. Well, anxiety blocks out recall, okay? That's just an, an axiom that I learned many years ago. That's why the person who's, you know, standing up and they hate speaking in public and they're giving the toast at a wedding, okay, and they don't get the name of the bride or the groom right in the whole time that they're speaking. Anxiety blocks out recall, makes you very nervous. So anyway, he's talking about this, this young man who was up there and he was preaching and he was coming to this, this big apex in his message, and he says... And in those unforgettable words, the irony of it just cracked us all up, which, of course, helped him a lot. And he tried again. In those unforgettable words, and it wasn't coming, and apparently he didn't have it written down in front of him. And then it finally comes to him, and we were so odd we could understand why you could forget that. Those unforgettable words were, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with me. <laughs> and, and what, yeah, I know, right? We're like, that was it? <laughs> anyway, uh, that's what I was thinking as Pastor Brent was up here dying last week. So it's, uh, it does my heart good. And uh, believe me, we all go there. We, oh, you have no idea what goes on in this mind while I'm up here trying to fake it when I'm lost. And I'm sure you never know. You're, you're like, what? Wasn't he talking? About, I don't know. Anyway, good morning. Let's begin to focus. We are in First Samuel chapter 9. Now there was a man 
of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Aviel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherat, the son of Aphia, son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Yeah, big deal. Now, that, that, that's not in there. That was a marginal reading. It just kind of was there. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants, and arise, go search for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. And then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they didn't find them. And when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, and let us return or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. <laughs> my first time reading through what I knew I was going to be preaching on today, I was like, what? That's it? What am I going to do other than restate the obvious, okay? Well, that's where meditation and prayer and the grace of God comes in, which you may differ with by the time we get to the end of this. But from my vantage point, the very subject of God's sovereignty has been a hotly contested theological doctrine or issue basically from the inception of the church. And there's one thing I learned in seminary that, holy cow, when you put theologians and scholars together to talk about something, to wrestle with something, I'm telling you, they can make a peach scream just in pulling their fuzz. I don't even know what I meant by that, but that, anyway. <laughs> Views of God's involvement in the universe run kind of from this spectrum. On the one end of the spectrum, it is that basically God's influence in the universe is non-existent because that individual is an atheist, so there is no God. The next level up of God's sovereignty and his involvement in the universe is as the divine initiator. That would be consistent with what we would call the deist. They believe in God, but he's aloof, starts things running, and then he kind of takes a vacation. The benevolent overseer is the next level of involvement, which would be the theist. And then, of course, there is the divine micromanager, which would be consistent with the view of the one who would probably not describe themselves, but are described as being a fatalist. That is, everything is determined. I mean, from what you got up and put on this morning and where you're going and the car stalling, all of that has already been predetermined. So we have one extreme of non-involvement to extreme extreme of being involved in basically everything, that everything happens and nothing is accidental and all of that. Well, corresponding with these views... Like I said, at the very beginning, they see no God at all. And then from there, there's varying iterations of a God who, like I said, gets the universe running. And then he leaves it alone. And then the one who keeps his eye on things, who only intermittently intervenes here and there. All the way again, like I said, to a God who has his hands in everything all the time. By the way, Jim, I just caught your face. 
We've been praying for Jim Moore in his open heart surgery. He's with us this morning. Yay. Thank you, Lord. It's great to see you. Yeah. Ah. Well, in my humble and somewhat ignorant opinion, all of these views are lacking as God is not so easily pinned down as if he is constrained by our desires for a God who is equally involved in all things, every hour, everywhere, at all times. We may not like that, but that's just the way it is. And so while most of us do not like going without hard and fast answers, God does what God wants to do. And he does it when he wants to do it. But I have to add a very important caveat to what I just said, lest it's misunderstood. And that is that all of what God does is always self-constrained by his own loving nature whose depths cannot be fathomed. And that's why Isaiah writes for our benefit in Isaiah forty twenty eight. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? Here it is. His understanding is inscrutable. Which means that God's motives, his methods, and his means cannot be scruted. What? Okay, <laughs> I was thinking about inscrutable, and I'm like, inscrutable? Well, if something's inscrutable, it can't be, you can't say it can't be screwed. It must be screwed. So I thought, you know what? Make up your own word. <laughs> Except to my utter dismay, I just had to check it for some reason. It actually is a word. From the Latin, no kidding, I'm not making this up now. Scrutari, from which we get our word scrutiny or scrutinize. And so you see... God cannot be scrutinized, and therefore he is inscrutable because he cannot be scruted. So there. (laughs) Anyway, in this particular context, we mean that the ways in which God chooses to be involved in the operation of the universe, and by that I'm, I'm, I'm including, you know, right down to our individual lives, okay? So don't just keep it far off. But his involvement cannot be predicted, nor can it be presumed. That is to say that what he does in one particular situation cannot necessarily be relied on to reoccur in a similar situation. Now, to be sure, sometimes in the daily affairs of the life of each one of us, he indeed may in fact place his hand over the eyes, for example, of the secret police, prohibiting them from seeing the Bible's that the missionaries are taking into a closed country. We've heard those stories. We know that he can and does do that. Or that he confuses airport security as to completely miss the fact that the person standing in front of him, whose passport he is now examining, is trying to get on a flight out of the country, and the guard, the the, uh, TSA, whatever they're not called TSA elsewhere in foreign countries, but whatever security is, totally misses the fact that this individual is on the apprehend, do not let them leave list. And they get on their plane and they safely leave. That, by the way, is a real true story of a faither here that we just learned last week, Barbara and I. Hopefully you will see by the time we get through this where this is all going. So we are in 1 Samuel chapter 9 as we work our way from beginning to end. And Israel is fed up, they're tired, or they're bored with the present governance, 
which happens to be a government that is, at the ultimate, run by God himself, the king of the universe. But he also does that through a divinely constructed form of governance. And we see the beginning of this taking shape in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, where the king of kings delineates this form of government that he prescribes for them, and as has been observed by David Barton, who's a historian, could be called a republic, as God instructs them to choose representatives to rule over them. If you remember the story in Exodus 18, I believe it is, concerning Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law, not Jethro of the Beverly Hillbillies. Don't confuse those two. Okay, But Jethro's father-in-law, and Moses was basically acting as the head of the, the nation, the head of the regions, the head of the locale, and the head all of it, and it was quite literally killing him. It was exhausting him, and Jethro says, you can't continue doing this. And so the civil governance was to be conducted on the foundation of a formal writ of uh, formal statement of laws. If you want, you can think of that as a constitution, but we'll call it the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Now, again, Moses, as the head of the national government with a national legislature now, after Jethro imparts his wisdom to him, now has 70 other leaders called elders. And then, as I mentioned, maybe two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, it is very early on that God warned them about selecting for themselves an earthly king and getting away from his prescribed form of government to form a monarchy, meaning basically one person who is a dictator, benevolent or otherwise, who is the head of all things, who has unilateral say and control over everything. Well, for centuries later, after the book of Deuteronomy, where God gives that proscription against uh, prescribing um, a king. Here now, where we are in 1 Samuel, God's people have demanded a king, and God says to Samuel, let him have it. I don't mean let him have it, but in a sense, he does mean, yeah, let him have it. In other words, give them what they want. And one of the driving qualities of the king that they wanted was that he look kingly. So that he would be the man who would look like the man of men, you know, kind of like Ken Graves, if you know who Ken Graves is. Sorry, that's how I picture man of men. So that when he would go out to fight their battles, his very appearance would engender respect, if not fright, from those who were planning to war against them. Now, let me hopefully maybe try and mitigate some embarrassment here by cautioning all of us to be slow in rolling our eyes at the people of God's profound shallowness. Really? That's your biggest concern is that he look kingly? Because, you know, I mean, let's be fair. Who would you rather have leading you? Someone who looks like King A <laughs> King DeVito who, by the way, stands four foot ten. (laughs) Or King B, King Sean, who has Queen Money Penny waiting for him back at the castle. And it's not like we have never heard or perhaps even said ourselves during an election for president, oh my, 
He's just so handsome. He's the, oh, he is just, he really looks presidential. My mother, and I won't tell you who it was, but she's old, so we can excuse that and everything else. Oh, he's so handsome. Really, Ma, that's why you're voting for him? Wow, but he just, Ma, you're killing me. So, yeah, let's be careful on those eye rolls. Enter now Saul, the son of Kish. Not Kish, because that would just go against everything about him being a king, unless it was a bacon Kish. Bacon. Bacon is good. Why is he talking about bacon? He t- I'm sorry. Okay. Saul, let's remember. Hey, I knew this was really dry going into it, right? So I said, okay, Lord, you got to help me do something with this. Saul is the king-elect, so to speak, even though he doesn't realize it, okay? President-elect is someone who has, in fact, been elected, but there's a lag period till the time they actually take office. So that's why I think it's fair to look at Saul as being the king-elect. And we have in the text that I just read a description of Saul's physical attributes. Now, my question to myself when I read that was, why do we have space taken up in the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word of God, delineating the king-elect's physical attributes. Well, thinking about it for a few seconds, it was pretty obvious. And that is that it's because God's people wanted someone, remember, to look like a king. Someone who would look presidential, I mean, who would look royal. Saul, the son of Kish, is then sent out on a mission. A mission for the king elect but this is not a mission of national importance this is not a mission vital to homeland security this is not mission impossible it's not even mission difficult to the outside observer it is a trivial mission And frankly, I don't see it as really being deserving or worthy of the time and the talent of someone who is slated to be the very first king of God's people. It's a simple, if not demeaning mission to go out and find some lost donkeys. And Papa Kish tells him to take one of the servants. One of the servants. The lowly. By cultural definition, not the finest specimen of mankind. And the narrative tells us in a very terse manner that after four searches in various regions of looking for the donkeys, they're not having any success. And Saul, again, who is royalty elect, wants to throw in the towel. He wants to just say, hey, look, let's go back home with a big mission fail. Maybe King Elect Saul was genuine when he uses the excuse that, you know what? We've been out here for quite a few days and everything else. My dad's going to start to get worried about me more so than he is the donkeys. Maybe he was sincere and all that. But the servant, who I'm just guessing because he is a servant, probably has a better appreciation for the value of donkeys, again, precisely because he is a servant, and so he isn't ready to quit. And beyond that, he has a plan. The servant has a plan, since plan A wasn't working. 
the king elect who will be leading a nation wants to call it quits, but the servant has a plan. The servant says to Saul, beginning verse 6, Behold now, there's a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor, and all that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there, and perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul, the king-elect, said to his servant, But, 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 well, behold, I mean, I, I mean, if we go and we happen to find the man, I'm adding a few words here, what shall we bring to him? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. I mean, what do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. And then there's a parenthetical comment that is added. I'm not going to go into why that is. It's not significant at this time. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, come and let us go to the seer, for he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. The servant tells the royal one elect that they need to go and they need to seek wise counsel. That is, they need special help. And he knows of a guy, hey, I know a guy, right? who has considerable street cred for being right. And so he suggests, let's, let's give it a shot before we throw in the towel here. Let's seek wise guidance when all else fails. Before throwing in the towel, let's get spiritual counsel. Now, I'm thinking that to be the king of a nation, call me crazy, it would be advisable that that king have more spiritual sensitivity, would have more stick to more creativity in his imaginations for solving things than a slave who, frankly, doesn't even have anything to gain by continuing what seemed like a futile search for these donkeys. Whether they go home with them or without them, it's not going to profit the servant anything. Saul's reaction to the servant's plan is again to remark why it won't work. It was the custom of the day to give some kind of a gift when you were going to see a seer or a prophet. So when Saul realizes that he has nothing to pay the man for his services, the lowly servant volunteers his own money. The soon-to-be king is broke, and the servant bails him out. There are so many ironies here. So Saul, royalty elect, is being led around by his servant over that difficult and complex, nationally important issue of finding the lost donkeys. And again, the king-elect wants to call it quits, but the servant wants to press on with a different strategy. Think about all of what I just said. Saul says to the servant, paraphrasing verse 10, Well, shucks and by golly, that sounds like a plan, so let's go. Verse 10, As they went up the slope to the city, 
they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? (laughs) I don't know, that cracks me up. The seer here? Where? Here. Who's where? Here. The seer. Sorry. They answered them and they said, he is. See, he's ahead of you. Hurry now, for he is coming to the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. And as soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for you will find him at once. And so they went up to the city. And as they came into the city, behold, Samuel. Oh, that's where Samuel's been. Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. Now, remember a few weeks back when we were talking about Samuel, how he was, in fact, an itinerant priest. And he had to travel throughout the regions to go perform the priestly functions. And so that's why Samuel is found now out here in the Willywags, at least from where he lived in Gibeah. So the king-elect and the spokesman of God, Samuel, just happen to run into each other. What a stroke of luck. They just happen to run into each other for what will be a monumental meeting in history. But you see, the director of this whole narrative, being the creator of the universe, he makes us privy to the director's cut, which reveals some of the unseen backstory of what unfolds and what has already unfolded. Picking up verse 15. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. So Samuel was ready and waiting and knowing, and Samuel had his own mission. About this time tomorrow, Samuel, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be the prince over my people, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, (laughs) Samuel saw Saul with a sawzall, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Now, again, thinking back to my introduction this morning about God's sovereignty and God's involvement in not just the universe, but in the daily affairs of mankind verse 18 then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said please tell me where the seer's house is Samuel answered Saul and said I'm the seer and I'm here no go up before me to the high place for you shall eat with me today in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind and oh by the way Saul thinking about that silly little mission your father sent you on, the one that you were ready to throw in the towel and bag and go home empty-handed, the one that your servant had to pretty much talk you into and lead you through it, don't worry about your donkeys that ran off three days ago. They've already been found. You see what Saul thought was the mission 
wasn't the mission at all. Verse 20. Saul, everything of value, Samuel continuing to talk to him, everything of value in Israel now belongs to you and your family. The recovery of your father's assets, the wisdom of your servant, was all part of a divinely orchestrated plan to bring you to this place at this time into my presence for me to anoint you as king. That was the mission all along. Saul replied, verse 21, A king? Me? Am I not a Benjamite? Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? Now, to Saul's credit, his humble beginnings indeed bred some humility. He was flabbergasted himself at the words that Samuel is telling him. That you are going to be the king of God's people. The first one ever of a whole new monarchy. And as we have seen in earlier times and in future times, the Lord is never swayed by appearance or other externals. Saul is concerned and flabbergasted because he was not of family or reputation. Even in God's sovereign choice of Israel as his unique people and unique relationship with him. Remember, God explains to them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples. For in fact, you are the fewest of all the peoples. The Lord is never swayed by appearance or other externals. Saul is not being coronated because of his family name or power. Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said to you, set it aside. And then the cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here's what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat because it has been kept for you until the appointed time since I said I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof and they rose early. And at daybreak, Samuel called to Saul on the roof saying, get up that I may send you away. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of the Lord to you. You see, sometimes, and I don't think it's rare, it's not all the time, but it's not infrequent, that sometimes the mission is not the mission. We get out of bed every day. We get dressed. 
Maybe we inventory, not even consciously, but we know what kind of the day is going to hold for us as well as some of the surprises that tend to come with whatever the particular job is that you had. And so we kind of, kind of assess the, the daily routine, presuming that the predictability of our routine is going to be just another day of doing what we must. I go back to last spring. I lose track of time. doesn't matter. Last spring or the spring before that. We had the wonderful, joyous news that our sewer line was backed up, clogged, whatever. Right? And, of course, everybody knows who owns a home that if the plug is from the street on, woo, you're in. It's the city's problem. Has there ever been in the history of mankind a plug that is from the street and beyond? I don't think so. So, of course, in come the backhoes and all that goes with digging up the sewer and all that good stuff. And the man that was there, he was an affable kind of guy. And we were just starting talking. He was the owner of the company, in fact. And as we started talking over the next two days that they were there, or three days, I forget what it was, maybe two. Somehow or another, the Lord orchestrated a great conversation between he and I where he revealed some things of quite intimate issues going on with his family and some of the challenges there. And I was able to bring, I didn't back up the gospel dump truck, you know, okay, bring the four spiritual laws in, bury them in it. But just giving him words of hope and confidence that there is a creator who is involved in cares and that he can comfort. He was not ignorant of such things. And all in all, it was very well received and appreciated. My mission that morning and the morning before when they were in there with the little scope running through, you know, and you're looking at it on the computer, was how much is this going to cost? What are we going to have to do to get this paid for real quickly? And, you know, all those sorts of things. My mission was not coping with a sewer. My mission was what did God have in that situation for that man or whoever? And as I've traipsed along this line now with, again, unfortunately, with so many people in our church that, and it just continues, with cancer and other dire things, is that having gone through that now, Barbara and I ourselves, it comes with a platform of credibility where before, even in the role as pastor, trying to speak truth into people's lives about this idea of the mission is not the mission. Because I could go back to my numerous hospitalizations and the conversations with the housekeeping gal who came in and we talked for an hour about her husband who was out of work and been out of work for a year, who was in fact himself a pastor, but he was disabled with some weird, bizarre disease and they were living on her income and everything else. And yet she wasn't whining or complaining. Her name was Joy, by the way. And she exemplified that. And after the fact, even now, I start wondering, it. I never saw her again after that. And did I notice little bumps under her little uniform, in the wing bumps? No, I, I don't know. And then several other people, and there was a great, awesome Sunday morning. I, I don't think. I say I never forget it. <laughs> I can't remember my name half the time. I hope I never forget it. It was a Sunday morning. I was in the hospital. 
And our dear Robin Wigan was also in the hospital. Actually, ironically, for the same thing. She was having a reaction to her chemotherapy and looked like she had an infection. So she was just a couple of doors down on my floor. Sunday morning, obviously we're not in church. I was able to get out of bed with my little cute outfit and all of that and put the mask on because she was on kind of, you know, precautions as I was and wheel my little IV cute thing down there trying to keep my bottom closed up and everything, you know. You know, those those great. Whoever invented those are going to have to wear those for eternity, I'm convinced. (laughs) And I walked in and Robin and I, We had church. We churched together and praised the Lord and encouraged each other. And you see, that morning I had no idea that that was going to be the mission of the day. My mission was to get better. My mission was to get well, to get out of that hospital. But the mission wasn't the mission. And I want to encourage us all this morning to realize that even in those monotonous, mundane routines of ours. God has opportunities waiting for everybody. I'm convinced not all the time and certainly not every day. And you don't want to manufacture something. That usually doesn't work well at all. But even just praying, Lord, make me sensitive today to whatever opportunities you may have already orchestrated for me doesn't mean again that necessarily there's going to be anything but if you do that every day or frequently you just wait and watch it's a whole new ball game when you realize the mission is always the mission whether you then eat or drink or whatever you do paul writes to the corinthians do all to the glory of god Again, Paul writes to the Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And again, to the same church, whatever you do, do your work wholeheartedly as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve in all things. Sometimes the mission is not the mission. Do we get it? Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you are a God who certainly understands our frailty and our foibles. Lord, I pray you would attune the people who love you in this body and certainly, Lord, myself. To those opportunities that you have set in motion. That if we are so fixated on the wrong mission. Instead of the mission. We will miss it most every time. And miss the joy. Of being used by you. To have eternal bearing on another person created in your image and likeness. Thank you for thinking enough of us to desire to use us that way. In the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.